0: I apologize, but uh, PowerPoint is not connecting to computer today, uh, the screen, and I don't like to mess with it and waste time that is better spent otherwise. So if you're needing the entertainment of a PowerPoint, just uh, look at me and that ought to be entertaining enough for you. Um, How God Leads His Church. Let's think about that this morning as we have been involved in a study on marks or distinguishing traits of healthy ministry, healthy churches. This morning is more, uh, which I I hope it it can be some discussion for any uh, questions, uh, connecting dots and thoughts as we go through Scripture together. We cannot in one short teaching segment exhaust a subject. That's not the purpose of this study we've been doing. But we're just bullet pointing what are these distinction marks of? what makes up Healthy Ministries, that we as a church might excel still more and that we might even come, al- come along others as we encourage family and friends elsewhere at what they need to be looking for in uh, biblical ministries. Much more will be fleshed out in our study in the book of Titus that we have uh, been studying. We looked last week at Titus' unequivocal mandate to go throughout the Isle of Crete and make sure every church on that island conformed consistently to the mandate of biblical eldership which is God's form which we'll uh, discuss a bit this morning. How does God lead His church? Oftentimes a study on church government, church leadership tends to be a topical lesson Um, But instead of this being topical springboard, if you wanted to join me in a passage which is one of the clearest and least ambiguous texts that we would find ourselves in Acts 20 if you want to be making your way there, various passages build the biblical case Recently I saw a list of over 120 responsibilities that the New Testament assigns to elders and 20 things that they forbid. When we get into this morning's message in Titus 1 during the worship service, we'll look at some prohibitions. Some, some negative qualities that cannot characterize the leadership. And then uh, as Paul continues to talk to Titus and we listen into the conversation, he gives some positive traits, some positive assertions. But I like when we have the opportunity to going to the fullest weight of a single the most clear and authoritative texts on subjects. And I think that we've got that in in Acts 20. Though we understand the context of the book of Acts, Acts is, is what? It's a history book. It's a narrative given by Dr. Luke of how the gospel grew and expanded and flourished under the power of the Holy Spirit as the apostles preached the word. Any organization recognizes at the foundation that uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. You've Got the wrong leadership, organization's not going to do well. And it's no different from a Christian ministry called the church. So, let's start off by defining terms and then we'll, uh, we'll read some of that passage of, of Acts 20. I, I just want to set this in our minds. Some, a lot of what I'm going to mention today ought to sound very familiar. It ought to uh, be uh, repetition, which is the key to learning. Uh, three terms speaking to the same group of people that lead God's church. We've got uh, what are termed as elders, presbyteros. We've got shepherd, also translated as pastor or the Greek term poimen, speaking to this. And also, thirdly, overseer or episkopos, a bishop. All three are used to refer to the same office of leadership. In Acts chapter 20, I'd remind you that this is Paul's farewell to the leadership at the church at Ephesus. And in Acts 20, we'll begin in verse number 17. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, called to him the elders of the church. So, so he, he, it's like he opens his arms to the, the brothers there and welcomes them Uh, around him. And when they come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you everything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, bonds and afflictions await me. But I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So, So he led by example of what they were to do. He said, uh, I don't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, verse 27. And notice his challenge, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. And I think that's an intentional order. Uh, Take heed to yourself. Then you take heed to the ministry. This is also in the pastorals. So he says, be on guard for yourselves, verse 28, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Stop for a moment. Who who establishes biblical leadership in the church? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You notice the, the uh, synony- uh, synonymous nature of those terms of overseer and shepherd. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from your own selves. Men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So be on the alert, remembering night and day. For a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one. I, I mean, imagine this. You know, here, here, Paul led by example, and they had him for a long time of, of mentoring. And then he, comm- he said, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He continues on. But you'll notice that all, the, all three terms, presbyteros, poimen, episkopos, elder, shepherd, overseer, are used synonymously, not just here, but elsewhere. Elder is one of a plurality of biblically qualified men who are joint servants that shepherd and oversee the local body of believers. You, if you've, if you've been attentive to what's been going on the last several years, you would see that there is a re-emphasis that hasn't been around in evangelicalism on eldership. Uh, a question was asked of Nine Mark's ministries, why so many Southern Baptist churches going to eldership? If I could find in my notes, I'd printed off a little Q and A from them at Nine Marks. There, there it is, where uh, Doctor Dever answers this question: Why do so many Southern Baptist churches seem to be moving in the direction of plural elder leadership? Conservative Baptists, located predominantly in the Northwest, have I've had elders for years. It's important to remember though, elders are not foreign to Southern Baptist churches. William Johnson, anybody recognize the name? He is the first president president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he advocated plural eldership in the early part of the 19th century. And as the century progressed, we saw two alarming trends. What moved the church away from eldership in this past century or so? Well first trend was away from scripture. You look at the modern approach to the Bible. I had posted a week or so maybe it was two weeks ago on, on Facebook, a friend of mine who is in New Testament faculty out at the Master's Seminary, launching another cause to warn men who are training for ministry about critical scholarship, those that want to downplay Scripture, which has been rampant in the past century, a trend away from Scripture, Away from divine inspiration being taken seriously. And as a result, what the Bible said became less and less important. So there was this trend in evangelicalism and in critical scholarship to to downplay the inspiration of Scripture. And also a downplaying toward efficiency. Efficiency. Where we want to bring into the church more of a CEO and board of directors model that existed, uh, that exists in the corporate world. That model stuck throughout the 20th century. So that towards the end of the century, century, there is a recovery of the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm, I'm really stoked about next spring going out to Shepherds Conference for the inerrancy conference. When, uh, when MacArthur came in to the alumni supper at last year's, uh, he, he, said, he said Master Seminary is going to host next year's Shepherds Conference and we are going to plant the flag that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we are going to trumpet the cause in our day and age that this book that God wrote is without error as people are wanting to waffle and to move away from it. Let's stem the tide against those that want to downplay it. Well, as the church has become more attentive to Scripture, with the rise of eldership has also been the rise of, a, of an interest in expository preaching. And I do not think that those two subjects are separate from each other. That as the church, or many churches, have been into teaching the Bible what God means by what He says, there is that corollary truth of God raising up and giving more of an interest to biblical leadership. As we began paying more and more attention to what the Bible said, we see churches being more overseen by a plurality of eldership, not just one elder, that is pastor-pope-dictator model. So, as you, you think about the three various terms used synonymously in the New Testament, the first list of qualifications for those that would lead God's church, we find where? The first list of qualifications of leadership. Put on your thinking cap. Where is it? Which Timothy? First Timothy chapter 3. And the second list is given in our study for this morning in the worship service, Titus chapter 1. Well, in that first list, in 1 Timothy 3, we are told that those qualifications are for who? Overseers. Titus 1, verse 5, what was Titus' mandate that we learned about last week? Appoint who? Elders. And so here we've got two lists with synonymous terms of overseers and elders those who are to be above reproach essentially we've got in two lists the same requirements virtually the same requirements what does that do in our understanding of how God leads the church and the structure and polity church government it does away with a hierarchical idea that of several priests and their parishes, outranked and governed by one bishop and his diocese, that's a foreign idea to the, new, uh, the uh, pastoral epistles. Pastoral epistles knows nothing of a hierarchy. When, w- when you use the word elder, what denomination do people... You're having a discussion with family members at Christmas coming up, and you mention elders, who are they going to think of? Automatically, huh? They're going to think Presbyterian. Oh, you go to Presbyterian church. No, actually, I don't. We generally disagree with Presbyterians on some of the, the polity uh, when it comes to eldership. There's a distinction between elders. That of, anybody familiar with the Presbyterian polity? You've got, you've got ruling elders and you've got teaching elders. Huh? We ought to be scratching our heads here. But, and, and before I throw my Presbyterian friends and brothers under the bus, we, there's a lot we'd agree with them on. You know. We'd agree with them on plurality. The New Testament doesn't, uh, however, specify number. How many should we have? Well, it doesn't answer that question. It just teaches a plurality. All throughout the book of Acts, if you were to trace this, or Titus, or James, you're going to find them referred to in the plural. I'm going to make a note in the morning sermon. Uh, when we go down through the qualifications list, uh, Paul is talking to the man individually. But overall, throughout the New Testament, it's a plurality. When you hear elder, don't just think Presbyterian. Think biblical, because that is God's model of how He leads the church. Insert to the discussion here, I I understand that uh, uh, last week's message would have gone down sideways in uh, some people's uh, thinking when I addressed that uh, I'd been involved in a discussion the previous week with people who don't think that the scriptures are sufficient in laying out a polity. I think it is. I think that to say that it has not that God has not been specific is to defy what we go to that prescribes how we do ministry, that it does indeed speak clearly as to how we structure the church. Think about it. Not just in Scripture, but how about in, in, in church history? A plurality of eldership was not segregated to Presbyterians. If you study your church history, you find a plurality of eldership in Baptist churches. So, here, here's a good Baptist talking to you. I am a Baptist because I baptize believers. Theologically defined, that makes me a Baptist. I don't... I don't baptize babies. Separates me from my Presbyterian brothers. I practice believers baptism. So I am a Baptist. By theological persuasion. You look at churches in America. Throughout the 18th and into the 19th century. Baptist churches being overseen, ruled and shepherded by elders. Not an elder. I'd already referred to the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson. Who wrote a treatise in 1846 calling Baptist churches to use a plurality of elders since the practice was biblical. That was his argument. He said if we want to be faithful to scripture, we practice a plurality of eldership. So we see Paul's example throughout his ministry. Uh, We see not only what he modeled to the Ephesian elders, we see what he prescribed to the churches, what he prescribed to Timothy, what he prescribed to Titus. Titus, appoint elders in all these churches. So that they understand that any church on Crete that does not conform to a consistent eldership is in breach of contract, is disobedient to the head of the church. So Paul was serving with humility and tears. He exercised diligence in preaching and teaching, practicing priorities, lacking in greed. And he exhorts them. Any deviation from the biblical model is to the detriment to the health and the stability. of the church. Leadership is no more CEO or jockeying a position or an authority. It's a plurality. It's servant-oriented, not manipulation or power-hungry oriented. It is qualified. We're going to look at uh, 14 qualifications God God gives to His leaders as they guard and teach Look at that slide that's, that uh, is intended to raise questions. Reconsidering Congregationalism. What has to be determined when we talk about how God leads the church, we must think through, is it biblical? That must be what drives us. Scripture. We need a biblical basis for everything we do. If scriptures are sufficient, they speak to this issue. You know, the the, the largest form of church governance entrenched in New England is congregationalism. Any congregationalist will submit to us, fourteen key texts in defense. Now, please, beloved, you you know me enough to know that when I put a a system at odds with Scripture, that there is it's not with malicious intents in questioning motives or anything like that. It's what does the Scriptures have to say? Is it biblical? I just got my hands on a new article that uh, I, I've been working on plowing down through uh, in regards to tracing the history of even the vote that comes uh, which is uh, a hallmark of congregationalism which uh, didn't enter in until the last two hundred years of church history but here's the two-fold premise notice the slide two-fold premise of congregationalism Each church's faith and practice is free from decisions made by anyone other than its members. Emphasis underscore there, members. So it rejects Episcopal and representative polities in trying to protect autonomy. The buck stops with us as members of the church. That's the first premise. Second is human authority in the church I don't know if you recall or if it's when you hit the snooze button during the sermon last week. But uh, you remember me raising the question on authority. What's your authority? In congregationalism, human authority in the church lies with the entire congregation. Not with elders. Not with bishop. Not with the pope. Not with the council. Not with the convention. And it is foisted as an attempt to protect the priesthood of, of the believer. Now, personal opinion is that I, I, I think that that's a false premise which uh, I'd have to spend a different time uh, chasing that down and discussing it with you. But uh, you'd have to notice this next bullet point that uh, it is based on inference, not Bible study. Congregationalism uh, is based on inference in, in scripture. Think think with me for a moment. I, I grew up in a congregational church. I've pastored congregational churches. Uh, if all of the visible church has weeds mixed in with the wheat which we are instructed in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, right? So the visible church has some of what Paul addressed to the Ephesian elders here in in Acts 20. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to come up from your own selves, drawing away disciples after themselves. We've got weeds. Every church on their membership roster has weeds, not just wheat we sit down, we talk with each other, we share each other's uh, testimonies of salvation. Many times we're not going to know that they're a weed unless they... There were two reasons I gave you last week when we looked at church discipline. One is they go out from us because they never were of us, 1 John. And the other reason is through church discipline. that They're going to pursue their sin, which is uncharacteristic of a believer. Believers sin, yes. They don't hold on to it. They try to for a while. David tried to for a while. Found out he wouldn't win. So if all the visible church, you've got a mixed multitude made up of believers and unbelievers. And even in the categories of believers, we've got mature believers. And if we've got mature believers, what's the contrast of that? Immature believers. We've even got... Disobedient or unqualified that are making determining a a decision. Uh, I didn't put it in my notes to discuss here, but since it's on the top of my brain, you know, one of the churches I used to pastor where we were a congregation. Even in a congregational church, what comes before the church? Church discipline situations, and there is a vote held as to whether or not we are obedient to Christ. Or, or, or our own wills. And whether you like that or not, that's the way it is in congregationalism. We voted, I, and I, when I say we, I was, I was just the pastor. There was a vote that took place as to whether or not somebody was going to go under church discipline. And we even had people in the congregation that would go to the sinning party and said, would you forgive? We, we never should have done this they defeated the purposes of God for their vote and for their disobedience and that is part of the system you know if I could uh, quote what would probably be a uh, you know Mark Dever who uh, has a lot to say about healthy churches that's why they've got nine marks ministries uh, I haven't figured out exactly all their flavor. They've got a modified congregationalism, but he himself has admitted, when I say that uh, congregationalism is based on inference, not Bible study, here's a quote from him. He, what he do his PhD in? Ecclesiastical history. If anybody studied the church, well, he has. He's speaking intelligently when he says, quote, The portrayal we get of congregationalism in the New Testament is quite an incomplete picture. He says we get it in snatches, asides, and assumptions, unquote. Inference, no scripture teaches it. Even the stro- its strongest advocates concede this. We all, I'll, I'll, I throw myself in with the all, we all have the tendency to read our assumptions into Scripture. That's why, what is one of the principles of hermeneutics? For those of you brothers that have been in class, you just admit it. That's what you, your natural drive is, is to read your assumptions into Scripture. That's why you got to question everything. Let it lie under the weight of Scripture. And if Scripture disproves what your assumption is, Scripture rules. But we've got that tendency to read our assumptions into Scripture. Uh, When it comes to this congregational thing, uh, uh, where it usually comes in on the whole church discipline thing is well, what else does it mean when you tell it to the church? Doesn't that imply voting? No, it doesn't. The witnesses did the job of confirming that this is a real sin issue so that when the witnesses come to the elders and then it comes to the church they're not affirming or negating whether it's a sin issue or whether they will obey or disobey it's so that the full weight of the brotherhood will come to that person not at all a vote so honest bible study admits that we read assumptions in and we've got to be cautious and let we we practice exegesis reading from the text what is there where scripture speaks we speak where it's silent we must zip So having said that move to the next slide that is not on the screen <laughs> a sampling of proof texts would start here with the church discipline scenario that I've been referring to, Matthew 18. We won't spend time here. We spent last week's lesson on church discipline. Tell it to the church. And I'm not seeking to seem overly critical. I just want us to be faithful to Scripture as absolutely humanly possible under the aid of the Holy Spirit. Jesus instructs the church before the church is around. Look at the progress of Revelation. Where does Matthew 18 fit in? We're still Old Covenant. Though Matthew is in the New Testament, this is is before the New Covenant. This is before the cross. This is before the church's birthday in Acts chapter 2. But Jesus instructs His church before it's around. The church is never here given authority to make a decision. The Lord calls the church to respond to the prior judgment of the two or three witnesses as we're taught way back in Deuteronomy 17 and 19. Jesus places authority on the two or three who spent the time and the energy to establish the evidence of unrepentant sin. So the authority is on them, not on the church. These are reliable people without malice, without prejudice, who determine the guilt of sin. They establish it. They don't necessarily have to be eyewitnesses, but they confirm the matter. When my eyes were twisted last night, I put my notes in the wrong order. I apologize. So, Christ is telling his witnesses here to establish the evidence. And then the church will submit to that evidence. Think about the two or three witness principle that Jesus relies on here, established back in the Old Testament. If the Israelite did not obey the established evidence of two or three witnesses in executing a convicted offender, what were they doing? They were disobeying God. Similarly, in a parallel vein, a church that refuses to confront an unrepentant member whose sin is established by two or three witnesses disobeys Christ, the head of the church. Neither Israel nor the gathered church was to make an independent decision on the credibility of the witnesses. It's already been established. Having a congregation vote on matters of sin and righteousness is a recipe for disaster and it's a recipe that invites the chastening of God upon that local ministry that calls themselves a church under the rule of Jesus Christ. The complex weave of people's sins present intricate and thorny matters that defy a public meeting. You can't spend the time at a congregational meeting unpacking all the intricacies of why somebody is uh, going through the process of church discipline. That's what the witnesses do. The church members don't have the heart or the time to investigate such matters. That's why Jesus commands His church to have witnesses to establish the facts. They're acting on behalf of the holiness of Jesus and the purity of the local congregation. When people end up making decisions on intricate matters without a lot of effort that Jesus expects that those two or three witnesses exert, they're practicing the sin of presumption in matters of other people's guilt and innocence. They're playing with people's lives. So the principle of majority doesn't make right. Right. It makes good American public policy, but poor ministry practice. With our presuppositions, letting our presuppositions be changed and tweaked as we are taught the Scripture. At the end of the day it's my house, right? right? Now that's different than Roman Catholicism making
1: decisions about bad priests in secret and not including people in. But it's also different from everybody voting on what they should do. It's you know, a shepherd working with their sheep, having communication back and forth, then making a prayerful decision. Correct.
0: And I don't wanna Belabor the point. Uh, you know, this is just one. You know, this is one of the big, bigger examples. Uh, the the church discipline scenario. The context. Jesus speaking these words prophetically as the church wasn't in existence yet. But the church would begin in not too many months, about eighteen months later, and they must use the epistles to the churches to fill in all the details along the line and search and submit. Moving to that next slide here's, a, here's another one of the passages that are promoted as teaching a congregational polity Acts one twenty three to 26 where the 120 are quote put forward is that congregational decision making? Uh, people with the perspective of congregational polity conclude that this teaches that the future congregation, which Acts one is still before Acts chapter what two, where the church is born. Uh, so, in the future Christian congregation, that, that they'd have the authority to select their own nominees for leadership, allowing the congregation to choose its. Leadership is an essential feature of congregationalism in many denominations, and many churches. But you'll notice in the text there, if you look it up later, that in in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, it wasn't the congregation that made the decision. Peter alone gave the selection criteria for the 12th Apostle. The congregation simply evaluated each potential man. Uh, one of the resources I'm going to be mentioning in the sermon this morning, we've had a, a handout in the uh, book nook for a year now going down through qualifications of elders, qualifications of deacons and, and at the very end of the handout it encourages the church. Hey, if you see these qualifications exemplified in men in the church, talk with us! It's, you know, it's not that the Church has their lips zipped. It's that uh, authority doesn't rely on the voting mechanism of the congregation. Now, if we were to have time, we'd spend time in the Acts six passage, verses one through six. You remember the scenario: the the uh, widows were neglected and. It wasn't the place for teachers of the Word, in that case the apostles, to leave the ministry of the Word and prayer to serve tables. And so, uh, we've got the seedbed, the kernel of the office of deacon in Acts 6. I do not believe Acts 6 are the first deacons. You look at the qualifications there of the servers and the qualifications of deacons, and they're different. So it's an office that would develop but the, the, the seed of those that would be serving in the church is here. Did the apostles place themselves under the congregational authority there? No, they did not. There was congregational involvement. They were alive, not dead. Not yes men, just sitting around, the bump on the log. It's simply not congregational rule though. It was apostolic rule with congregational involvement. No votes, no amendments, no debate there's probably some healthy discussion. Honoring to God, which many, boy, as I look at faces, I know many of you who have sat in the same kind of meetings as I have in ungodly congregational meetings where God is not honored. So it just speaks to the issue that the congregation's role is limited and specific. We cannot read into that That the buck stops with the congregational vote. From beginning to end, Luke explains that the authority in the matter came from the apostles, those uh, those that God delegated it to. So there was participation. That's the issue. Voting as it takes place in congregational churches today did not happen the 16th century and uh, that's for another discussion on uh, a lesson on church history for another time would you pray with me our god we ask that you would enlighten our eyes to understand your truth and to put it into practice in our individual lives as members of your church and corporately as the local expression of the body of christ we want to be faithful We want to be obedient. We continue to pray that You would raise up godly men to serve Your church, to serve Christ in serving Your people, to shepherd them in Your truth, to equip us to lead lives of gratitude to our great King, the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Himself. We pray in His matchless name. Amen.